I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the fifth part of my sermonic review of the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that if you choose to be grateful for that which you have, rather than being angry about that which you do not have, you can be happy regardless of your situation. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Well, our lesson for today on December 27th is the fifth part of the biblical design of gender, and the, t- and the text is Genesis chapter 2, 12, verse 2, which says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear this message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, our takeaway point in this series is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, I use the word man in the way that others might use the word mankind, because in Genesis 1.27, God tells us, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And in God's design, the male of the species was never intended to be by himself. In Genesis 2.18, the Bible says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, in God's plan, a helper is not one that duplicates the activities of the one that they are helping. When people help one another, They create a cooperative coalition, meaning that people are doing different things together to accomplish a task like a baseball pitcher and catcher. When two people are doing the same thing to accomplish a task, they are not really helping each other. They are rather working in parallel. Helping implies teamwork, and man needed someone to play a role on the team that the man could not play himself. Now, to learn to walk, children must first learn to balance themselves as they stand upright, and then they must learn to move their legs properly. 
If a child does not have the ability to balance, someone can help him walk by holding his arms to balance him. But a child that can both balance and move his legs but is afraid to walk somewhere by himself does not actually need help walking, but they need company, someone to walk with them to reassure them of their abilities. And when God created the woman, he created a helper for the man in the sense that he gave the woman a different role than the man. In Genesis 3.16, God said to the woman, In pain you shall bring forth children. And in Genesis 3.17 and 18, God said to the man, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. Now, both the man and the woman were penalized because of their sin. The penalty, however, was in coordination with God's prime directive for fruitful multiplication, as we can tell by the phrase, bring forth in the penalties. The female was specifically tasked with bringing forth and caring for children, while the male was tasked with bringing forth and caring for the produce of the field that they were to eat for the rest of their lives. Now, food is essential to sustain life, and children are essential to carry out the prime directive to increase and multiply. The nurture of children leads to the development of family, which is the framework that God has ordained that we use to achieve the objective of developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in heaven. Thus, men and women have to form a cooperative coalition in this life in order to prepare for life in the next world. Now the word family describes the offspring of a male and female relationship. Mankind is really one big family as God only created two people and everyone else is an offspring of those two people. But as the Bible continues, God divided the big family into separate units. Genesis 11, 1, 2, and 4 records, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now mankind, being a family, wanted to build one city and congregate in one geographical area rather than taking dominion over the whole earth. But having one population center was not that which God had in mind. And God intervened to make sure that it did not happen as Genesis 11, 5-8 records. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. 
So the Lord scattered them abroad from them over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. So the different languages that exist on earth divide the original family into large family units called nations. God then began mixing the nations by moving individual family units from one nation to another. As he recorded in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, 2, and 5, which says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Then Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. And as the biblical focus shifts from the family of mankind to the family of Abram, through which God chose to work, the problems that God addresses shift from global problems to personal ones. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10 through 13 records, Now there was a famine in the land of Canaan, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to Egypt, that he said to Sarah his wife, Indeed I know that you are a woman of a beautiful countenance. Therefore it will happen, when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, that I may live because of you. Now Genesis 2.24 tells us that God's plan is that men be monogamous, meaning that a man should have one wife as his companion for life. But men who were given dominion over women in Genesis 3.16 took advantage of the position of power given them by God to institute the practice of polygamy, as first recorded in Genesis 4.19, in which men had more than one wife. Now, Abram's people did not practice polygamy, but the famine in Canaan gave Abram the opportunity to practice serial monogamy, which allows men to have more than one wife, but only one wife at a time. And Abram wanted to give his extremely desirable wife, his half-sister Sarah, to the Pharaoh and marry another woman. Now, neither going to Egypt nor giving up his wife was Abram's only alternative. So why would Abram volunteer to give up the extremely desirable Sarah? Well, because Sarah was failing at her God-given task. Abraham could not produce crops in Canaan because of the famine, and Sarah could not produce children because she was barren. And in Genesis 12, 2, God told Abraham, Abram rather, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Now, at this juncture in human history, the word nation means a large family. After the flood recorded in Genesis 6 through 8, 
the land was vacant. And in Genesis 10, we see the list of the various large families formed by the prolific number of offspring produced by Noah's children and grandchildren. In Genesis 11, God moved the large families of mankind out into different geographical regions to form new nations. God told Abram to leave his home territory to be the father of a great nation, which meant to Abram that he would have many children. But unfortunately, the land to which God sent Abram did not produce crops, and Abram's wife Sarah did not produce children. Now, fortunately for Abram, he could fix his side of the problem because there was plenty of more fertile ground to which he could move. But Sarah was personally infertile, and she took her lack of fertility with her to whatever land they traveled. And although Sarah was beautiful, the A part of Proverbs 30 and 31 and 30 says, charm is deceitful and beauty is passive. To Abram, Sarah was like an expensive sports car with a blown motor. It looks really good in the driveway, but it's worthless out on the street. And Abram, being a godly man, was not a polygamist, but Abram wanted offspring and Sarah was not forthcoming. So Abram decided to go to Egypt to trade Sarah in to get a different model, to get a different fertile wife. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 14 through 16, so it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw Sarah, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Now the Pharaoh unwittingly went along with Abram's program and Abram was able to unload his beautiful infertile wife on the Pharaoh. Abram hit the mother load because since he was actually Sarah's brother, the Pharaoh treated Abram, Abram well and paid Abram a large bride price for Sarah. Abram made out like a fat rat in a cheese factory and would be able to start looking for a beautiful Egyptian wife just as soon as the Pharaoh married Sarah and sealed the deal. But God had a different plan. God wanted Abram and Sarah to bring the child of the promise into the world. Now, in our previous two lessons, we discussed other children of the promise. John the Baptist was born to a woman who was past the age of childbearing, and Jesus Christ was born to a virgin. God does miraculous things with the people he chooses to use, but God's timing forces the people with whom he chooses to use to be patient with his plan. As the old preacher used to say, God may not come when you want him, but he's always right on time. His time, of course. And the people whom God chooses to use need to have faith while they suffer deprivation in some form as God brings his plan into fruition. God does that which we find counterintuitive because he is wiser than we are and he has determined that the world can only be redeemed from sin 
by seeing faith in his servants as they suffer for him. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 tells us, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. And people hate to suffer, but because of sin, suffering is the key to almost all human progress, whether individual or group progress. Because of sin, work is toil and childbirth is pain. Family relationships, maintaining marital commitments and raising children call for endurance and may lead to disappointment and suffering. As Proverbs 10, 19 and 21 tell us, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. A foolish son is the ruin of his father and the contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. Better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman, and the foolishness of a man twists his way, and his heart frets against the Lord. And the big problem is recorded in Romans 3.23, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone with whom we come into contact, family, stranger, friend or foe, is a sinner. And just as the man and the woman in the garden caused one another to suffer by their sin, we all cause anyone with whom we have a relationship to endure suffering as a result of our sin. And neither Abram nor Sarah wanted to continue suffering the indignity and disappointment of their barrenness, which was caused by the plan of God rather than sin, but was as embarrassing as a sin would be to them both. Abram wanted a wife that would produce the nation that God promised him. And Sarah was ready to trade Abraham for a husband that already had a nation, one that would not make her a nomad, but rather give her a palatial home in a rich kingdom. Abraham proposed that Sarah tell the Pharaoh that she was available to marry him and use her attractiveness to seduce the Pharaoh. Sarah, de Sarah deceived the Pharaoh and went home with him, indicating that she was not a victim, but rather a co-conspirator. Their planned work, and each of them was about to receive the benefit that they desired, until God intervened in Genesis 12, 20, 17 through 20, which says, But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And the Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife, Take her and go your way. So the Pharaoh commanded his men concerning Abram, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now the Pharaoh never had any intention of killing Abram to get his wife. The Pharaoh did not even take back the bride price that he paid for Sarah, but gave Abram both his wife and the goods. 
Now we read in Genesis 12, 2, that God told Abraham, Abram rather, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. God promised Abram that he would become a great nation. Abram's supposed fear of the Pharaoh was so totally unfounded that I postulate that Abram wasn't really afraid at all but merely attempting to get rid of a defective wife. Abram and Sarah had a problem with each other because they were looking through the wrong end of the telescope. They had much for which to be thankful, but were focused on their temporary disappointment rather than the promise of God. They needed an attitude adjustment. And I'm reminded of the man that said, I was angry because I had no shoes until I met a man that had no feet. Now, as Jesus was reclining at the Last Supper, preparing for the ordeal of his crucifixion, he reassured the disciples in John 16, 32 and 33. Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In other words, after the advent of sin, temporary trouble and short-term suffering are part of the deal but God is still in control and has your overall and eternal destiny in his hands. If God promises you that you will become a great nation as he did Abram, then a great nation is that which you will become, regardless of how unlikely it appears to you. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 to 8, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, Whatsoever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. If your anxiety is so high and your prayer is so lacking that you cannot find the hand of God in your situation, then the peace of God will not be with you, and your focus will be on that which is false, unjust, impure, ugly, and neither virtuous nor praiseworthy. But Jesus says to be of good cheer. And the Holy Spirit says through the pen of the Apostle Paul that we ought to pray rather than to be anxious. If we want the happiness of the peace of God, we have to change to focus from disappointment to faith. And one of the most interesting principles that I have come across is that no person can make another person happy. Happiness is gratitude for having wisdom and understanding, and it comes from within. Proverbs 3, 13, 14, and 18 says, 
Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all who retain her. So when a person can wisely assess their situation and find the providence of God in their situation, they will be grateful to God and gratitude leads to happiness. If a person chooses to be angry about the negative rather than grateful for the positive, they will be unhappy regardless of their situation because there is always something negative in our sinful situation. If you choose to be grateful for that which you have, rather than being angry about that which you do not have, you can be happy regardless of the situation. Of course, if your spouse is addicted to a controlled substance, physically violent, or having an extramarital affair without provocation, leaving your marriage may be in order, but in situations other than those, we ought heed the admonition of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, which said, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned to be both full and hungry, to both abound and to suffer need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So the one that is in control of our lives is Christ. We have dominion over some things, but Christ is in control. The knowledge of evil causes us dissatisfaction as we try to avoid the suffering that evil brings us, but simply because we know that evil exists does not mean that we can discern the difference between actual disevil, actual evil rather, and our discomfort with the plan of God, which is not under our personal control. God's plan was that Abram and Sarah miraculously bring the child of the promise into the world long after Sarah passed the age of childbearing. The child of the promise would not have been a miraculous child, had his parents previously had other children. Rather than being the child of the promise, he would have simply been a change of life baby born by, born naturally by an extremely fertile woman. Sarah's barrenness was not evil, and he, Abram's attempts to get a more fertile wife would not have remedied evil, but ha, would have simply worked counter to the plan of God. But God did not reveal his entire plan to Abram because God required Abram to act in faith. Now I listened to Joseph, Abram's great-grandson, whose brothers hated him and sold him into Egyptian slavery. His slave master thought that Joseph was making a play for his wife and threw Joseph into an Egyptian prison. But in the prison, Joseph met a man whom the Pharaoh had sent to jail, and when the Pharaoh pardoned the man, the man told the Pharaoh about Joseph's ability to interpret dreams, and Joseph used his God-given ability to interpret Pharaoh's dream, take over the economic system of Egypt, and then to become second in command after the Pharaoh in Egypt. 
when another great famine came to Canaan, and the brothers sold Joseph into Egyptian slavery, and then they came to Egypt to buy food, Joseph told them in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 and 21, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph had the perspective that Abram did not. And we ought to emulate Joseph's perspective. Jesus tells us in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And this is the key. If I love you, I will recognize that you will have faults and foibles. Romans 3.23 hasn't changed in the last 20 minutes. It still says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the admonition of God is to love one another. What does that mean for husbands and wives? Well, it means that every morning when you wake up, your first and foremost thought should be, what can I do to make my spouse's life worth living today? God tells the man and the woman in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Husbands and wives are to be one with one another and love one another because eventually sons and daughters are going to marry and move away. Eventually, our parents are going to leave us here as they go on to be with the Lord. A few months after my youngest brother graduated from college, my dad sent me a postcard from London, then Paris, then the Orient, then Hawaii. And then one day after he was back at home, I called him. What's the deal on all these postcards, I asked him. Your mother wanted to go on a trip around the world, so I took her, he responded. Mom and dad were inseparable, even when mom started losing her mental faculties to Alzheimer's disease. Brothers and sisters don't count on being young and strong forever, because the day is coming when you are going to need a companion, and if you haven't shown love to the one that you promised to love, they may not be around to love you when you really need them. Remember Abram's plan of serial monogamy. It still exists in our day. God tells us that it's not good for a man to be alone, and God takes the long view. You may think that it's all right to be alone when you are young and strong, but eventually you are going to need somebody, and the people that were in your life from birth may not be there to help you. But disappointments will not survive. Troubles, heartaches, and pains will soon be over. We are just here temporarily to learn to serve God in our next life. God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife 
so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. And the only way that we can do that is to love one another, even as the Lord has loved us with all of our faults and foibles, with all of our mistakes and misdeeds. So let us be wise, look for the good in our situation, and be happy with one another. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Praise God, our Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us the perspective of Abraham. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to evaluate our lives and find the places where we are dissatisfied with what's going on and help us to take the long view and recognize that you are working out your plan through our lives, that you have something for us in your kingdom, and that these trials and tribulations through which we must go are temporary and that they simply are making us stronger, that we might be able to serve you when we reach your kingdom. Give us that strength and give us that faith, even as you gave to Joseph, that we might be able to do good to those that do evil to us, that we might be sons of you, because you allow your son to shine on the evil and on the good, and that you bring rain on the just and on the unjust. And now Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today, and we give you, ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place. And then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, arising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.